Hello and welcome to this, the 11th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogue-McAnally, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar and of course this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland now each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge we promise that we'll never ever charge for this podcast but of course as ever we are looking for you to put your money into Irish theatre that's the whole ethos behind this podcast to support promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And how can you best do that? Of course, go and buy yourself some tickets, whether that's a theatre that's local to you, a theatre in a big city near you, whatever it is, go out there, put your money in your where your mouth is, I guess, and go and buy yourself some tickets to a show. If maybe tickets are outside your reach this week or this month, maybe go check out a crowdsourcing website, the likes of a fundit.ie, an Indiegogo, whatever. See if there's a theatre project there that you deem worthy of support. Donations often start as low as a fiver, And there are always great rewards. And of course, there's many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, uh, whether that's in person, over a cup of coffee or a pint, or by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter. We are trying to get the word out about Irish theatre. The more that you can get the word out about us, the more that helps us along our merry way. Um, Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. And for those of you who are not uh, iTunes and Apple signed up or whatever uh, these podcasts are of course streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie do please go back and listen to all the other episodes both in this second series and the 52 episodes from series one leave us a review on itunes if you would or simply click to rate us on their five star rating system and as ever you can follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise ireland And so that brings us to our guest this week, who is the brilliant Marion O'Dwyer, who I was delighted to see get a nomination this week for the Irish Times Theatre Awards. Now, the conversation you're about to hear was recorded the day before the nominations were announced, so obviously we don't discuss it here, but I'm over the moon for Marion, and I think inexplicably this is her first ever nomination, which will tell you a little bit about the judging process involved. Um, But look, Marion is a superstar who I know over 15 years now. We worked together on Plough at the Abbey, which was one of my very first jobs out of drama school, and she really took me under her wing and made me feel incredibly welcome. Uh, It's something I'll be eternally grateful for. She is a wonderful person, she is the best of crack, and she's a properly brilliant actor. So let's get straight to it. The brilliant Marion O'Dwyer. The wonderful Marion O'Dwyer. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) I am very, very excited to have you here. Um, So I would like to begin with you, as I do every week with everybody. Do you have a recollection of a first moment of wanting to get into the business or thinking that it might be a possibility for you? Or was it something that you just always knew deep inside yourself? Um, no, I didn't know always deep inside myself, but uh, I had been doing classes in the Gate Theatre many hundreds of years ago when I was in school. And um, I got a walk on in a play out of that. And up to that, I thought I would be a primary school teacher like most of my cousins and have lots of long summer holidays and uh, I remember standing in the dressing room and somebody coming in talking about the next play being cast and were there parts in that for the women and I suddenly went 
oh, maybe I could do this instead. And that was a little, you know, little moment that I sort of started to change my mind about what I wanted to do because I loved being in the show. And so at that stage then, I mean, it, like it, this, are you looking at a career was at this stage or is this still only just try, kind of trying it out early days? Um, well, the reason I got into it at all was my parents had seen the classes advertised and I think they thought, it, when, when I was a child, I wanted to do drama classes and... Um, they were sort of fobbing me off that they were all in London. <laughs> so uh, they got out of it that way. But um, anyway, they saw these classes in the gate being advertised. And I think they really thought it was a way of getting out of being shy and sort of withdrawn a bit, you know. So I started doing these classes after school and with the late, great Christopher Casson. And um, he was brilliant, of course. And it was very theatrical. So you did the classes on the gate stage. So... Wow. You know, you learnt on the actual stage, which was brilliant, I thought. And um, then, as I say, I got that walk on and uh, that started me wanting. That that was the bug, as they say, you know, it was a bit... <laughs> and was there, was at, at that stage then, was it uh, gung-ho, let's go and try and do this for a living? Or was there, like, maybe let's get a real job, fall back on something? Well, the parents were very much getting something to fall back on. Okay. So, um I essentially looked around at the quickest way to do that. I didn't get enough points to get into Trinity, which broke my heart because I really admired Trinity players at the time. Right. Um, so then I thought, well, what's quick? And a secretary, of course, was the quickest thing. So <laughs> I did one of those. And Where then... technically you would have done a qualification, <laughs> but it was in a short period of time. Yeah, I like as it. quick as I could and uh, get something under my belt. And then, of course, you know, the, as I went on, I realised, well, you need a bit of experience to be able to do temp work, which was my plan. And then, uh, so I got a job in the bank and uh, I really didn't think I'd stay longer than a few months, but I enjoyed it so much. It was kind of my university because yeah. I started work when I was just turned 17. So um, I stayed nearly two years and then I was offered a job as a clown with Tom McGinty. So then off I went. Wow. <laughs> That's something I didn't know about you. Yeah, it was a good jump, you know, from banker to... Uh, Clown. <laughs> and where, tell me more, but I'm intrigued by that. Um, well, he, he was setting up a company. He was the Dandelion Clown, as everybody knows. And he was setting up a company called the Dandelion Clown Company. And uh, there was four of us in it. And uh, we, myself and uh, another girl who's no longer in the business, uh, she was also in the bank uh, in a different company. But um, we both quit our jobs and went to be... Mime to, to run away with the circus, <laughs> yeah, <nearly>. literally. <laughs> um, and so were you performing around Ireland? In yeah, Dublin we were or? based in Galway, and we did the primary schools around Ireland and wow. toured around the little ramshackle bus, and yeah, did all that. Now, as you look back on it, is it wonderfully rose tinted and glamorous? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I have really funny memories at that time. I mean, God rest Tom, he was brilliant, but you know, he used to sit at the back of whatever hall we were in, whatever primary school. And a lot of the primary schools at the time, they had these sort of tables that would join together to make the stage. Right. And there was one particular school, I remember, they hadn't joined them together properly. So as the show progressed, they started to come apart. So we were essentially like, you know, jumping from island to island <laughs> in the show. Wow. And Tom used to mouth the words along with us at the back of the hall. And like, you just sort of, you'd think, well, if I dry, I can just look down and see what Tom is mouthing. But of course, he would dry with you and his oh, mouth would just hang open. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was uh, I mean, something only a young person can do, really. I think, you know, it was, um, it was uh, busy and tough and brilliant. You know, we did stage, uh, we did um, 
what I call it, uh, street theatre as well, and or as my mother used to call it, begging. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do that in Galway and things like that. Yeah. Wow. A great time. But in terms of a foundation for having a total fearlessness in front of any audience, doing that in front of those kids on a stage that's shifting like tectonic plates. <laughs> I mean, I think if you can handle that, you can handle anything. Well, it was a good training, and I always think like the, the children's audience is the most honest audience you'll get because they just tell you immediately. Yeah. If they're bored, you'll know, and if they're in, you know, involved, they, you'll know. So, um, yes, it's very good training. I, I, it didn't get rid of the fear, but it did, it did train as well, I think. Yeah. Now, I'm a man who loves a good family dynasty story. Yes. There, there is a family <laughs> connection in the business too, though, obviously. Yes, well, my father, Frank Woodward, God rest him, he was a radio actor, and he was in the RT players, and was known as the Radio Air and Rep, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, so he was he was an actor in the days of the live radio play on a Sunday night and he played many leads over the years but he he had stopped acting by the time I was born so I didn't know him as an actor as such do you know so um, and he didn't really do stage work so our experiences of the business were completely different though I did do four years in the rep at one stage but uh, you know I remember one time him giving me a lift into work I was late or some show in the Abbey and um, I said well as long as I'm in for the half hour call I'll be grand you know so he proudly pulled up and said there we are half seven you know it's an eight o'clock show and I went I'm late <laughs> five minutes late you know so all that sort of those little subtleties you yeah. know it's different but um, yeah and when he retired he took early retirement and then started being an actor you know right. again so he did a lot of telly and, and film and stuff like that and some radio work and we did a couple of radio plays together so that was cool what was that like I mean it that's was great fun but it, it was so funny because there was one we did the dead school an adaptation of the Pat yeah. Cave, and um, I'll never forget the sight of God rest them both Mick Lally and my father at the mic and dad had to sing you ain't seen nothing yet and it was his idea of hell I think you know <laughs> and it was really kind of amazing seeing him just like the rest of us yeah. you know <laughs> But um, having directed me in loads of things, you know, when I was in the rep. But um, yeah, yeah, he enjoyed it, I think, very much going back to acting. It was where his heart was, really. Yeah. How did you find your time there? Because I, I think the, the discipline of radio plays is, is it's, a separate, it's a separate strand it's as well. Very it's very different. Yeah. Um, well, I found it a little bit difficult. It's difficult to sustain your creativity, I think, in, mm-hmm. in a sort of institution like RTE, because... It's such a behemoth, and you know, you you get a bit institutionalized after a while. I think, um, you know, a lot of people were sort of there just marking time, and you'd be all enthusiastic about a play, and then everybody else, you know, wouldn't maybe be in the same mode as you, and I I found that difficult. So, I used to get releases and do theatre work while I was there, right, and that was that was great because that kept the blood going, you know. Well, then, so talk to me about forays into the career proper the theatre career proper I mean uh-huh. having done the walk on stuff early yeah. on having had your time with clowning <laughs> when did it start when do you feel it really started to kick off for you um, well when I was in the gate I got a part um, in a play it was just a few lines and I was I found out I was second choice for it and everything <laughs> you know it was classic it's a real uh, way of passage uh, though and, and I was like but I, I was at last I got into one of the theatres in town you yeah. know so, uh, I mean, I'd done all sorts of pub theatre and stuff, you know, and I thought I'd never get going. And uh, 
So it's amazing how it was just a little chink in the armor and then I was in and I could get auditions then. Yeah. Before they didn't get seen for an audition, you know. I think now young people have a way through the, the business. It's more, it's less opaque. It yeah. was very much a mystery tour, uh, how to get started when I was young, you know. But um, um, yeah, once I got that those few lines, then I got asked to uh, audition for uh, Blind Spirit. And it's Gaz. I'm sharing a dressing room with Rosalie Nillen at the moment because we're doing the red shoes in the gate. And um, she obviously played brilliantly Madame Arcati in that. And um, I auditioned and was down to between me and Barbara Brennan. Right. And that for me was the accolade that I was being considered alongside somebody as amazing as Barbara. And needless to say, of course, Barbara got the part. But then what happened, I was very lucky, somebody dropped out and Barbara took you over a different role. And I got to take over from Barbara. Wow. So that was my, I sort of see that in my head as my big break, yeah. you know, Joe Dowling was directing that and um, it was a great experience, it was amazing. I couldn't believe I was on the stage with Rosalind and, and I still can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's... I still feel a bit like, oh my God, it's Rosalind Lennon, you know. I, I think that's okay. I think a healthy amount of <laughs> fandom is all right yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I think every game. actor has that about somebody, you know. I mean, there's certain people that if I've got to work with them, I wonder would I be able to cope? Would I be able to manage, like if I was casting something with Judy Dench or something yeah. like that now? But I remember, I mean, I mean safe in your presence when I got the gig in Plough in the Abbey with you I mean the idea of being on stage with you and Kathy Belton and Old Row genuinely it was kind of like because these you were the people that you know six months previously I was paying money to buy a ticket to see and they were going to do it but I I love I love people who have that kind of spirit about them because I think it's still it speaks to you still having kind of a a kind of a joy for what it is that we do theatre is sort of an addiction I think think so too Um, so there was a good bit of work at the gate in yeah, early I was days very lucky. Yeah, and um, like I was still in the in the RT players. So I was still doing radio. I did that for about four years, and then um, I'm trying to remember what way it went. But I can't remember. Oh, my first Abbey gig was through Joe actually. Right. Yeah, Joe cast me in in You Can't Take It With You. So then I got a few gigs there. So it sort of then started to be both places, which now, was brilliant. That's a relatively rare thing because it felt for a long time that either you were in one camp or the other and never the twain shall meet except it kind of feels that if you're good enough they find a way to make it work clearly (laughs) clearly you were good enough to find a way to make it work I don't know it was just luck I mean I think it was just luck that the director I had worked with was working in the Abbey it's one of those things this game is built on so much circumstance and luck I think you know and being ready for something to, to fall into your lap and just be able to take take it when it comes you know but um I always felt it was very important to be to maintain a kind of independence and not stay working just in one theatre you yeah. know I think probably my four years in RT gave me that like that I kind of <laughs> thought you need to make sure that you're you're you know just independent and you know that was why I got myself an agent in England as well and yeah. worked in England and did theatre there as well and and, and telly thank god as well and film but you know it just means that you're not you know going to just if you, somebody goes off you you're not going to be unemployed you yeah. know because we it is a small town really and um i think you know it's important to kind of maintain as much independence as you can i think so too do you think that people can come in and out of fashion both i mean, yeah. I mean that both in terms of Absolutely. actors but also kind of the the gatekeepers who would have control over which actors going in that even yeah, absolutely and it's it's human nature it's it's nothing there's nothing sinister in it i don't yeah. think you know and it's also the nature of the work and um 
I can remember there was one time uh, in theatre that there was like a three-hander with three men in the Abbey and a one-hander downstairs, you know, and again, another man, and you can't go, well, there's so few people being employed and, you know, it's just, that's the way it was, you know, and it sort of comes and goes. I mean, as we were saying earlier, I'm doing the Beyond Manageable Sisters in the Abbey and there's 15 women and that, so that's like a response to, to the way things have been, you know, which is great and, um, and long may it last that we balance the budget that way, you yeah. know, but... Um, yeah, I think, you know, one of the big mistakes, I think, is for people when they start taking the business personally. You know, you, you really can't. Yeah. You know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. And, I mean, I heard an actor there, there's a great series called In the Moment, not unlike this, I'm sure you've seen it in little film videos. And um, uh, this actor was just saying, it, somebody sat him down at a very early age and said, you know, it's like surfing. It goes in waves yeah. and it comes and it goes and sometimes you have to sit back on the beach and wait for the next wave, you know, and that's a brilliant analogy of the way this game is, you know, because you can be so busy and think, will I ever get a moment to myself again? Will I ever get the laundry done, you know? Yeah. And then you've, you're twiddling your thumbs and you're thinking, what will I crochet now, you know? <laughs> that, that's not the specific <laughs> question I ask myself. what will I do? <laughs> yeah, it's a funny, I mean, I think increasingly as I go on through my career, I think what sets out pros is not so much about what you do on stage, but almost about how you sustain the career when you're off stage. As I such. agree. As in keeping yourself sane as a human Absolutely. and developing new leads and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for any of us, there are, as you say, these ways that it comes and goes. Are you fairly able to handle those gaps in between? I mean, you're, yeah, I you're enjoy lucky that you're when I'm pretty off, busy. I actually enjoy it. I, I enjoy kind of being domestic and, you know, sort of baking and you know catching up with friends and being very quiet I love all that and I'm lucky where I live I live near the sea and you know start sort of appreciating where I am but um obviously if it goes on too long it gets a bit hairy and for the bank manager especially (laughs) but um I think it's an interesting point you make because I also think you know because we work at night um in in the theatre this is obviously specifically um it's important how an actor handles their day off until it's time to go into the theatre. And you can see some actors don't really know. And I mean, I, I had my party times myself when I was very young that, you know, they kind of go mad going out late at night and then the day is just spent recovering from yeah. that and to get able to get on the stage the next night. And I think when the smart actors don't do that, I think the smart ones kind of find a way to make use of their day that yeah. they have you know, develop themselves in other ways so that they're not bereft when they're unemployed. That's not just about, you know, losing your, your method of earning money, that it's, you know, it's not losing your total identity. Well, yeah, you know? exactly. Because it can be a bit like that. I mean, we all, there's no two ways about it. I was looking at Rosaline and myself waiting to go on there the other night and I was kind of going, she's so electrified by being in the theatre and it is just, she's really enjoying it, you know. And you think, I think it's always going to be like that. It's yeah. an addiction and you get like that, you know. You love it and you hate it at the same time yeah. sometimes because it's a tough master, you know. But, um, uh, yeah, I think it's important to develop your own self as well. And, and you are your own tool as well for for work. So, you know, yeah. your own instrument, rather. <laughs> Might be a better way of putting it. <laughs> but, um, you know, that so the more you learn about other stuff. I mean, I'm really glad I worked in offices as a young one because I think it's 
it's good to know about other sides of life and other ways of living your life, you know? Yeah, it is. It again, doesn't I, sound too pretentious. But no, you know what I no mean? but I think it's true because I think I, I was fairly sure that I knew everything at 21. Yeah, um, I think that's what I, happens. I think, I think the, the longer I go on, I realise that maybe that wasn't quite necessarily accurate. Uh, I think that's solution. exactly it, though. I think the younger you are, the more you know. And then as you get older, you'll realise, oh, I know nothing. Absolutely <laughs> nothing. But I guess as long as we keep ourselves open to learning, yeah, that that's what yeah. and particularly I guess in, in this line of work that you are always encountering new people, both literally encountering new people in the room rehearsing with yeah. you, but new people that you have to play and go, well, how do I unlock this person? Yeah, I, I, I mean, like I'm about to work with a new director now. I've never worked with Graham McLaren before, and I've seen his work, and you know, you kind of think, okay, I hope we get on well. I hope you know we bring out the best in each other, and it's it's learning to be flexible with all of that you know i mean i think it's really important for actors to be adaptable yeah that, that's crucial because your life is a series of adapting to new circumstances whether it's in work out of work or you know different working with different people different teams of people different way of going on you know like some directors will give you a very detailed schedule for your rehearsal period and think, oh, this is fantastic. I know exactly what way my life's going to be. And then other directors do, don't give you a schedule at all and just it's a free fall. And that can be great as well, you know. So you just have to go with it and everything has its pluses and its minuses and find out what you can bring to the table with that, you know. Talking about working with new directors, there's a couple of directors that you've had an ongoing kind of collaboration with over a long period of time. I'm thinking yeah. the likes of Ben Barnes, the likes of Patrick Mason, yeah. um, even Selena as well. Yes, um, Joe Dowling as well. Yeah. Lot of work like, what's it, what is it like to kind of check back in with that artistic partnership every couple it's, of years over a long really period of time? It's really interesting. I mean, I, find, I worked with Joe Dowling there um, in the Abbey a few years ago and I hadn't worked with him for many years, having worked with him a lot yeah. when I was younger. And it was funny, I felt I regressed back to a young one who, you know, sort of being very... And I thought, who, who's this person now? <laughs> um, so it was kind of a readjustment, like, no, I'm supposed to be a grown-up now, you know. But, um, yeah, I think it's good because, like, say, for instance, Selena now, who directed The Red Shoes, I worked with her, this is my third time working with her. And the first time I worked with her, I was at sea. I didn't get the way she worked at all. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure this is for me at all. And it was just completely different to anything I'd known. She wasn't as language-based as I would like to be, and or as psychology-based even. This was back on, it, on Big Love, yes, we yeah, which was bonkers. Together. Like, it was a bonkers like, play as yeah. well, brilliant bonkers play. But it was all about the visuals, mm. and, and that kind of screwed up my head a wee bit, and I, I found it hard to, to adjust to that. And then the second time I worked with her was on Baga Cats and yeah. Marina Carr play. And so I went into the rehearsals knowing, right, okay, Selena's going to want to do that 25 times and then she might change her mind and not do it at all. But that's okay. That's what we're paid for. That's fine. And I think I was more sanguine about stuff that kind of I couldn't cope with at the beginning yeah. and therefore got the gold out of her in yeah. the sense that she enjoyed the experience way more and... Um, I mean, I don't know, was I any better in that show than I was in the first show? But I felt I yeah. was doing better work because of it, you know. So there's those kind of things, I suppose. And there's certain shortcuts as well. And people, I mean, we're very lucky in Ireland because, like, I'll go into that rehearsal room on Monday now. It's the first day of The Unmanageable Sisters. I will know an, an awful lot of them. I, I would think that I'm not sure there's anybody that's a stranger to me, a yeah. complete stranger. 
Um, so I, I would know most of them socially, but I've worked with a good many of them. So, you know, there's a shorthand there that happens yeah. automatically, which I remember some an English actress saying that to me, you know, the novelty for them is if they do know somebody in the rehearsal room on the first day, okay. you know, that it's that different, you yeah. know. So um, it's a great luxury because I think, you know, there are shortcuts that happen without you even realising it. Well, you, know? you hear a lot of Irish actors talk about an unofficial, unsubsidised rep of acting yes, because, because yes. the pool is as finite as it is. Yes. That, as you say, for most productions, when we walk in on day one, I mean, hopefully, at least half of them, you'll have shared you'll a stage share, with before yeah. or whatever. Like, if not shared a pint with them at some yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Owen Rowe, who I'm married to in the Red Shoes, this is my third time being married to him. <laughs> so, and we have yet to do a happy marriage. but <laughs> I'm not possibly but going to one, comment on that maybe, at all. <laughs> This one has some happiness in it, but uh, yeah, you know, so like, therefore, you know, I mean, he's great. Obviously, he's such a fine actor. He's wonderful to work with. But, you know, there are rhythms you pick up on that that you automatically know he's going to go this way, so I can go this way. And you just play off each other much more happily, I think, because of it. What do you want from a director? When do you feel like it's clicking for you? My simple thing. What I want from a director is permission to be bad. Okay. I'm very, I think it's very important that rehearsals are, be as bad as you can be, make as many mistakes as you want to make, get them all out of the way so you don't do them in front of the people who've paid for a ticket. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, a director who trusts that, yes, I know that's bad. <laughs> you, know? you know, who trusts that, can we just do it this way, get it out of the way because... Yeah. It needs to be done just so we know it's as bad as it is. I don't. I know that sounds ludicrous in one way because you're trying to be the best you can be, but in a weird way, I think if you're allowed that kind of madness, it, it you do get to be better than. I think it's you, important. I've been the, as I've moved more towards directing as a kind of a parallel strand for me in the last couple of years. A note I'll often give is. I know this is going to be wrong and it can't work. Will you please just try this anyway? Yes, so that yes. when it's done, I know that it's wrong. Yeah. And then they do it and I go, yeah, absolutely. That's appalling. Don't ever yeah. listen to another note I ever give you. I don't know. It's like doing scribbles or sketches before you do a painting or something. I don't know. It, it just, it helps the process so much. And particularly, can I please be allowed corpse as much as possible in the process <laughs> so I don't corpse during the show? <laughs> You know, I mean, some directors, you see them getting nervous, oh, there's an awful lot of giggling going on here. But in actual fact, I think there's a bubble of energy that goes along with that. You know, I mean, I have earned the title Giggles O'Dwyer enough for no I bad reason. I can't possibly imagine why. <laughs> but I think there is a bubble of magic that happens when people are giddy and playing. Yeah. I mean, the word is play. Yeah. And I think it's very important to be allowed to play, you know, and... You know, sometimes you're working with the director and you're a slave to a concept and people can be so constrained by that and then the best work doesn't happen, I think. You yeah. Know? I, well, I think it, it is a thing of people try and get too prescriptive, then, you know, the famous happy accident. You don't yeah, leave, you you don't don't leave room it. for the happy exactly, accident. Exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, I kind of go into rehearsals in a very free fall kind of a way. I mean, now that I'm a bit older, I prepare in ways around it. But, you know, I don't, ever go into rehearsals thinking well now I know exactly how I want to play that scene and I hope the director doesn't go in knowing exactly what he or she wants from that scene you know or how that scene will play yeah I mean I I, I think so too I I found 
recently we found a tape of the famous Ray McAnally teaching yes. uh, Connor and Neve, his son and daughter, how to direct for theatre. Yeah. Uh, and so I've listened back to it, and some of it's incredible and really insightful and works beautifully. And others, other elements, I'm gonna go, oh, Jesus, no! In that, like, he would block the entire show yeah. on a scale model of the set with like poker chips assigned to each performer. I can't imagine yeah. anything worse. I heard the directors doing that before in the past, all right. And I suppose they did have shorter rehearsal periods, yeah. which is possibly one of the reasons that happened. But like, I've done shows where a director has done a production of the play in some other country. Sure. And we're being told, okay, you move here, you move there, and you move that. And again, like that, no happy accidents. It, mm. it does mean it's not as good as it could be, I think. Yeah. But having said that, when we did Dancing at Lunasa, Patrick Mason had done the production, the first production. And he, he said a great thing when we started rehearsals. Look, you know, can you trust me that we have gone through these mistakes and we've arrived at the optimum way of playing this particular section? And we did that and then I think we maybe got deeper into other stuff because we had that luxury. So yeah. sometimes it is a good thing, but it just depends on how it's applied, I suppose. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's a funny thing. I mean, like you say, if you trust that they've already climbed the first three rungs of the ladder, then yes. you have the time to get three rungs higher or yeah. three different rungs later on. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Um, well, okay, you've you've mentioned Luna, so, so <laughs> I, I, I want to talk Freel. Yes. Um, you have freel. been lucky enough to do a whole heap of Brian Freel yeah. plays. Um, I My undying love for Brian Freel is no secret to anybody. Uh, and we, we may get to the uh, production you made with a certain Dominic Drungul, where when I auditioned for that show, in the middle of the audition, having had an element of debate where I suggested that Freel was the greatest writer of all time, and him with his globe background maybe suggesting that Shakespeare might be better, <laughs> I actually invited him to step outside to say, look, man, oh man. Um, weirdly threatening to punch him didn't land me the job, which I think is short-sighted on his part. Um, but talk to me about your involvement with Freel over the years and um, working on those plays. A Freel is just heaven for an actor because there's so much depth in the writing. It's, I, I mean, it's just heaven. And heaven and hell, I suppose, because you you know you're always worried there's something you're missing as well, I suppose. But um, Lunasa was an amazing experience because we did the we were kind of like uh, just after the first original company went. They I think they were in were they still on Broadway? I think they were when we were playing. So we did the Abbey, then we did an Irish tour, then we did an Australian tour, and then we came back and we played the Gaiety. Right. And by the time we came back to do the Gaiety run, we had been in Australia for nearly six months. And by that stage, I think we were miming the whole thing or, you know, flagging things like mad because obviously it was a very different audience in Australia. And Patrick did another brilliant thing that he got us to do a television version of it and got us to get small, you know, because we were just gone very broad, I think, by the time we came back. But um, so that was a brilliant experience, and then to play the Gaiety, which of course is the perfect theatre yeah. to play it in, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, I just have always thoroughly enjoyed. I, I I'm trying to remember now. I did Dancing at Luna said. Then I did Wonderful Tennessee. I did. I've done Philadelphia Here I Come twice. Actually, I had a very funny conversation. Somebody was talking about a production of Philadelphia Here I Come. They were listing off. I think it's the Dominic Drum Gould one actually. And they were saying, oh, yes, so-and-so played such and such. And I thought, I wonder who played my part. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, I had played my part. <laughs> I was in that one. I thought, I'm definitely getting old now that I don't even remember which That's productions fantastic. I was in, you know. 
but um, yeah no it's always just very satisfying and of course it was great when the great man himself was coming to see you and very nerve-wracking of course but you know it's great to see that he, he thought you were okay like. um, did you get notes from him and what's it like to get a note from Brian Friel um, I did get notes from him it depends depends on the year we're like um, I mean there was once I remember being a bit cheeky uh, in wonderful Tennessee when we were rehearsing he was sitting in at the rehearsals and actually in light of uh, making mistakes it wasn't so hectic having him there because I think maybe we were a bit too reverent you know okay. doing that the first production of wonderful Tennessee but anyway um, he was sitting looking and he had like the, the two eyebrows were just a complete rogue on his forehead and he was in a frown and I thought, oh, he's obviously hating what I'm doing. I can't bear this. And I eventually said, you're really frightening me. Words that were a bit more <laughs> vulgar than that. Uh, you know, uh, what am I doing? And he said, oh, I was thinking of something totally different. I think he was writing the next play in his head or something. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. But um, I know he was such a dose to us and he loved actors and he was so kind and generous to us. And, you know, if he did give you a note, it would be succinct and witty usually, of course. But um, an actor who I won't name did tell me they got a note from him once. Uh, One one was that you don't need to play the whole play in the first line. (laughs) (laughs) And the other note he gave her was, um, I don't do irony. Wow. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but... <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. See, that's the trouble. They don't always tell the truth. I mean, you'd ask Brian, what does that mean? And he'd go, I don't know. <laughs> and you think, yes, you do, but you just don't want to say, yeah. you know? Um, there was a funny thing. I mean, because Wonderful Tennessee was all about the mysteries of the universe and, and all that, and it was so ineffable as as he would say himself um you know there were a lot of mysteries in the play and trying to decipher what was going on what was being inferred and when he would say i don't know um i went to ardra uh with a bank holiday weekend during rehearsals and i went to to ardra and i thought i'll get into the humor of the play and i'll go and appear and i'll be all in the play and uh, a friend of mine was, was filming there and uh, they had got us a house to stay in which was one of the crew was using and when I arrived there was this book on the windowsill a book called In Connell's Footsteps and um, I can't remember the detail now particularly but it was a foreword by Brian Freely and I thought oh my goodness this is like finding gold on the windowsill <laughs> because when I started reading it an awful lot of them, the mysteries of the play were from this book that this book had obviously inspired something in him to write the play I imagine that's I mean he wasn't best pleased and I said I was in Ardran <laughs> I found this book and he just went oh right okay <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. mm-hmm. and was it Wonderful Tennessee that brought you to the Shining Lights of Broadway it was yeah it was I mean that was one of those golden years I started off the year swimming on a rooftop pool <laughs> in Sydney having just got the news that I had got this job of Brian Friel's next play I couldn't believe it I could not believe it and I was swimming in the 40 degree heat thinking oh my god I'm starting off the year um, in Sydney in a Brian Friel play and I'm going to finish it off on Broadway in a Brian Friel play it's It's not a a bad year it was insane you know 
Um, it really was insane. And but I think the only downside of that was I was so tired because you know we'd done eight shows a week of Lunacy for almost a year, and you know with gaps and breaks here and there. But it, you know it's a very intense play to do. It takes a lot out of you uh, emotionally and physically. So to double job into the new play then mm. was was kind of a hop, skip, and a jump. I mean, I was technically supposed to be young then, <laughs> but um, uh, you know it was like I remember kind of we didn't have a long run as everybody knows on Broadway, um, but we did about three and a half weeks of previews and then a week when you know we officially yeah. opened and closed. And I was almost relieved. I was that tired, right. and it's a terrible thing to admit, really. But I remember going to see some show after that because um, I stayed on. I had my apartment paid for for a while, and um, a friend and I went to see this play. And, and at the interval, we came out onto the street the way they do on Broadway, and everybody's on from all the different plays, standing on the pavement. I thought, oh my god, this is so exciting! Oh, I'd love to play Broadway someday. I thought, man, you just did, you know, because you don't. I mean, when you're doing a play, you, you look at you could be it doesn't matter if you're in the Dean Crow Hall in Athlone or if you're on Broadway it's the same difference it doesn't make any difference really apart from there's a slight bit of pressure with, with producers floating around yeah. and you know very serious faces and you know all through the previews it matters so much yeah. you know there's a lot of money riding on it and of course when that happens yeah the pressure's there for, for people but you know you tend to be just doing a play yourself yeah. as an actor, you know, you're just the, the process of play the and work, the getting work ready to change. go on stage and is your voice all right and yeah. have you got a head cold today or not, you know, yeah. that's what it's about really and um, yeah, it was weird because I did, I did feel like I didn't, I didn't realise it was happening as it was happening yeah. in a way, you know. Yeah. Is the machine around it different? I mean, like you say, like producers floating all that, it's... But I guess, I mean, how connected to that are we on a day-to-day basis? I mean, yeah, we're you, not really that it, connected to it, yeah. but, but it was a little bit more in evidence when we were doing sure. the, the show on Broadway. But um, I always remember, you know, the way the Americans, they were so, so welcoming. They had these lovely big red Macy's boxes with towels for us, you know, welcome to the theatre, and oh my <laughs> God, it was all exciting. And of course, we all love getting presents and <laughs> delighted with ourselves. But I, they did a... Um, very nicely an old Lang Syne visit when we were closing you know and the producers came around and I always remember God rest Donald McCann saying do you want your towels back (laughs) (laughs) glorious (laughs) glorious (laughs) that's that's so oh man I love it Um, let's talk for a moment if we can about Agnes Brown Uh uh-huh because as we now know Mrs. Brown's voice has taken over the whole world as the number one TV show and whatever else. <laughs> but before there was the TV show, there was the feature film, Motion Picture. Yes. Um, tell me a bit about the process of that. That must have been the crack. That was mad. It was mad. It was, that was another one I didn't believe when it happened. You know, it was insane because I was kind of, you know, I got to one of those stages that you get to every now and again as, a, as an actor in the theatre thinking, oh, I'm fed up with this. Like, I'm after been working my socks off and I can't pay the ESB bill. I haven't a farthing saved, yeah. you know. And uh, I was sort of, I wonder, should I do something else with my life? And it was all of that. And then this came out of total left field. I was asked to go in and essentially I was just told that uh, Maureen Hughes' company, they were casting it and they rang up and just said, uh, Angelica Houston has flown in and it's late notice, but she wants to just do a read through of the film and she wants somebody to read her part so she can just hear the film in its entirety. Right. 
So there's a little bit of me, so I, they were asking me to read her part in front of her. And I thought, yeah, that's no, really Again, no pressure like, again. You know, divine. But then I just thought, well, that's there. get the chance to shake her hand. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So that was literally all I went in with was I'd be able to boast that I shook her hand, you know. Went in and it was gas. I was talking to my friend, Sean Rocks, who now does Arena. He was an actor at the time. And I said, would you look at that? There's a character called Marion, you know, just laughing about it. And uh, there was a girl, a brilliant uh, girl read that. And um, I thought she had the part. I just presumed she had. And uh, she was, I, I don't know, was she Irish? But anyway, I remember there was some reason I thought maybe maybe they wouldn't cast her. But anyway, she was brilliant. And I thought it was her part. So uh, anyway, we did the reading. And I did remember Angelica started doing this thing that, that filmmakers do, making a square with their hands and looking at, it through, at me a lot. And I said, what's that about? But... Anyway, that's grand. So anyway, one thing borrowed another and I was asked in to audition then for Marion, as was a lot of Dublin and uh, didn't expect anything out of it at all. And then was asked again and then started to pray a lot. (laughs) And I think um, there was a third audition and there was a reading and a few producers at that. And and then it started to seem like it might actually be a possibility, which seemed so unreal because i'd never done a film in my life right you know? so to get that as your first part was kind of ludicrous but it happened it was insane but she did push for me a lot um i later found out and because understandably the producers you know you know <laughs> you know this one hasn't done a film nobody's ever heard of her why would you want her in a major role you know and they had um asked some names that thanks god for me they turned <laughs> it down but anyway, so yeah, then um, it just became a lovely adventure. It was a really fabulous experience. I, I enjoyed it so much and made some great pals. And, you know, it was a really good, good, fun time. Yeah. Uh, was there much of the Hollywood machine flying around it just with, with her in town? Or was it... Was it, was no, it too there much wasn't really, because Angelica's not really like that. Yeah. I mean, even though she's Hollywood royalty, yeah. really, she doesn't inhabit that you know uh, she's just not interested uh, in, in that kind of thing I suppose it, well certainly not in Dublin in Ring's End there wouldn't be much point because <laughs> the women around Ring's End wouldn't have much time for they'd you they'd let you know very <laughs> quickly be into that. they'd let you know very but, quickly um, yeah no, and she's very down to earth and you know we got it together doing the, the research for it like uh, you know we went down to Moore Street and we were selling fruit and vegetables on the street and all that crack and that was hilarious I mean you know but um, I, what I found interesting about the whole film business was that you really, it's, you, you tend to think of theatre as being the tough one, mm. the tough business. But in actual fact, film, I think, is equally, if maybe sometimes more tough because of what's expected of you and the hours are so crazy. And I mean, she was directing and starring, but, you know, she was doing... I don't know how many hours her day they had yeah. in it, you know. Um, so it's kind of um, unforgiving that way, I think, you know, the, 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 the sort of uh, uh, demands that are put on actors, you know. You have had, by any objective measure, an incredibly successful career. Very lucky, yeah. What does success look like to you or what does success feel like to you? Um, or how do you measure it, maybe? How do I measure it? 
just doing good work. I mean, you know, it, so it, I know that sounds it's very boring answer, but um, uh, I feel very lucky that that I haven't felt I've had to do work that I would hate to do, or you know, that that I think wouldn't be uh, stretching me in some way. You know, I I just feel very lucky that I I've nearly always get a script and look and go yeah there's things i have to learn that i could do you know what i mean things yeah. that will, will stretch me um uh i suppose you never really feel oh now i'm a success and now i've got this and now i've done, done that or whatever but there are certain things you you kind of you're thrilled you got to do obviously the, the broadway thing obviously working on new field plays i mean that was such a compliment you know but um i think not to be Pollyanna about it, but to be working is to be a success in this business. And I'm always just really thrilled to be working, you know. That's Do you still have ambitions for things? Is there a, is there is there a bucket list of No, I did I when I was younger I did and I like I would have loved to play Juno for instance. That was one ambition that never got fulfilled. And you know, the few parts here and there when I was younger uh, and now I kind of go, oh, freak, don't don't be putting your heart on anything, you know, just whatever comes around the corner comes around the corner, you know. Um, I mean, I'm not proactive. I know maybe, I mean, I've had people tell me I should be more, that I shouldn't be passive. Um, I think the only proactive thing I did was the show in a bag thing that I did with yes, Marie McDermott's row. And I'm so pleased I did that. And uh, When you talk about what success, I just feel that was a watershed. There was two watersheds for me. One was doing a one-woman play. And the other was doing our own play. Yeah. Because both of them gave me a sort of a comfort zone on stage that I hadn't had before where I kind of went, well, now, if I can do that, I can do this. I'll surely be able to do this, you know. Um, the, the show in the back, I think any, if there's any actor listening to this who's fed up not being employed or not getting the parts they want, do a show in the back. I would really heartily recommend it. It's such, never did me uh, any harm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know what it's like. It's just the most satisfying thing in the world to put something together. I couldn't believe we did it. And, you know, I, I got to have my rant about hospital car parks and things that I hate, you know. <laughs> um, it was it was nice. It was just a really good experience. I mean, I'd love to be a writer. I wish I could write. Um, and, and I keep sort of threatening to make an effort, you know, to do it again. But... I did really get great satisfaction out of that particular job, you know. And of course, I was working with a pal who, you know, Maria and I, you know, we go back since out before Lunacy even we'd worked together, and you know, it was a great sort of thing to sort of say, look at, let's work together. What in particular was the appeal of showing a bag? Was it the sense of agency of I can control my own destiny and do my thing? Was it the, the stretching yourself in terms of the writing? Was it just getting to bounce off a pal on stage? I mean, it was each of those all of those, be, yeah. all of those. Actually, one of the main pushing things on it was that I wanted to work with Maria and I hadn't worked with her in a long time. We just hadn't happened to be cast in the same stuff. And she had done a lot of television work and, you know, we just, our paths hadn't crossed. Yeah. And, you know, the trouble is, you, you it, working on stuff, it's so intense that your social life, you know, you tend to not see your pals that aren't working on the same shows, you know. So, 
I was kind of going, God, you know, we really need to, to, to hang out more and, you know, we really should work together to achieve that, you know. <laughs> but that was one of it. But the agency part of it is a brilliant thing. For I mean, yeah, you can tend to feel like a bit of a puppet sometimes as an actor. And, and to get over that, that was a great way of getting over it, you know. I know one thing I learned from it was I certainly don't want to be a producer. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't envy any producer out there. It's such a tough game. Uh and as you looked at, so no concrete ambitions of bucket list of ticking stuff off, but no. just to keep going, keep doing good work. Yeah, I mean, I'd like work. to do more film than telly, definitely, because um, I, I enjoy it very much. Um, but I love theatre, and I'm lucky enough that they've been giving me work, but it'll be whatever way the wind blows next, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> I am particularly glad that they keep giving you all this work, because it means I can keep working with you and coming to see you. <laughs> Marion, thank you so much for coming in. That's oh, a fantastic chat, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. <laughs> so, there you have it. The great Marion O'Dwyer. So wonderful to catch up with her. And a fortuitous bit of timing on our part that it coincided perfectly with the award nomination. I'm delighted for Marion, and I'm very much looking forward to having the crack with her on the night. I think it's going to be a blast. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of theatrical goings on around the country at the Abbey Theatre. They have the final performances of Let the Right One In and Class is about to begin. And of course, don't forget the 24-hour plays in aid of DYT is also going to be at the Abbey very soon. At the Gate Theatre, they continue with the Red Shoes. Uh, and at the Gaiety Theatre, they have the final few performances of Rapunzel. And that'll, of course, be followed by Druid's production of Sive. At the Board gosh, they're about to finish up with Beautiful and that'll be followed by Spamalot. Um, at the new theatre, they have Home. Um, the Viking in Clontarf has Typhoid Mary, which I believe is completely sold out, but maybe do double check with a phone call through to Andy and Laura there. That'll be followed by Dirt Birds Live. At Bewley's, they continue with All Honey, which I'm hearing incredibly good things about. Um, and at Smock Alley, they have the Seen and Heard Festival, uh, which is well worth checking out. An awful lot of smaller scale shows, uh, shows in development, experimental stuff, well worth getting a chance to go and throw an eye on the shows that are happening there lots of exciting stuff happening at the Project Arts Centre also then they have If We Got Some More Cocaine I Could Show You How I Love You starring the brilliant Alan Mann that's definitely worth checking out if you can find the time and then as we head south to the Everyman in Cork they have How It Is and The Love Hungry Farmer coming up with the great Des Kyo uh, out west to Galway they have Hope and Fury The Lime Tree in Limerick will have someone who will watch over me soon as part of that nationwide tour and the lyric in Belfast have that Scottish play and then the Thrippany Opera is also coming up so look that's us that's episode 11 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week we'll see you next week